Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Study the book, studying the book of Romans verse by verse, and we left off in chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, and we'll use our text this morning for our scripture reading. Romans chapter 2. Beginning with verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there's no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful today that you are an almighty God. You are a God who is truly worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. Father, you're worry, worthy of our attention. But Father, thank you that as an almighty God, you have shown us your tremendous love. You tell us that God so loved the world. And Father, you loved us so much that you sent your son to rescue us, to save us, to deliver us. And on that cross, Father, you laid on him the iniquity of us all. You bruised him on the cross, your Bible tells us. He took our penalty for sin on himself so that we might be forgiven, so that we might in turn stand in his righteousness and be fit for heaven. And we're thankful that that salvation is a free gift that you give to each of us. And Father, we rejoice in your goodness to us, in your love for us, and the provision of salvation, and your faithfulness to us. For God, truly you are a God who, are, who is faithful to your children. You've given us promises to help us navigate life. You watch over us each day and provide and protect us. You guide us in the way we should go. And Father, we're so thankful that you are present help in trouble. And so, Father, we come before you today in respect of who you are, in respect of your word as well. May we listen today to what you have to say. May we open our hearts to your spirit as you do a work in our hearts to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation. May we open to his leading as he teaches us how we ought to live and how we ought to view life. And, Father, may, may we be ready to sit at your feet and learn today. 
And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and guide and open our understanding as we look into your word together and that each one of us here might respond with a thank you an acknowledgement and an acceptance of what you're teaching us as our foundation of the foundation of truth in our very own lives as well. And Father, for those who are not with us today, that you would watch over them, whatever their needs might be in the moment, Father, you would protect them, watch over them, draw them to yourself as well. And so we're thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning, be glorified as we study your word together. Now we pray in Jesus' name. In this section of scripture that we are in, we're kind of in the middle of a section that, that discusses the righteousness of God. We saw in chapter 1, the earlier parts of God, that, that God has, in the gospel, is revealed to mankind the righteousness of God. We see in chapter later in chapter 3, kind of the, the two bookends of this passage, where it tells us, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. And God here in this book is attempting to reveal to us righteousness, his righteousness, not only just as a standard, but, but the message is how man can attain to that righteousness. Because in between those two passages, in the portion we are in, we find a description of the depravity of man. And it's not a pretty picture, is it? Because God teaches us that we've all sinned, and that's the conclusion we come to as we come to the end of this passage. We find in chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. We find in verse 23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what that means is that man, in the, in the eyes of God, is unrighteous then, ungodly. He is without righteousness in himself. And in this portion, we find that God addresses three different classes of sinners, so to speak. Not the good, the bad, and the ugly, but he, but he describes, first of all, the immoral man. And we looked at that last time in the end of chapter 1. All the ugliness we saw, the expression of the sinfulness of man, described in chapter 1, we title that passage a description of the immoral man. As we begin chapter 2, we begin to look at a passage in regards to a moral man, a respectable sinner, uh, we might say. And as you get to the middle of chapter 2 and in in, in, into chapter 3, we find the Jews used as an example of the religious man. Three different classes of sinner, all in the same need, all in the same state of sin, all needing a Savior, all needing God's righteousness in order to enter heaven. And, and that's what this, the message here is all about. As God goes through great lengths to describe to us, so it leaves no doubt, no excuse, as this passage says, in regards to our standing before God as sinners who come short of God's goodness and God's glory, needing salvation. And what we find in this passage is a universal depravity of man, which really leads then to the universal need for a Savior. For the Lord Jesus Christ to come and rescue us, to pay, our, to pay our penalty on the cross, pay for our sins, so that we might be forgiven, cleansed, and guaranteed eternal life. You might say in answer to the invitation you see in the scriptures, whosoever will may come, you, in, in, in light of that, in the light of this passage, you, we, what we see is allsoever, if I can invent a word, needs to come. That's the message here. We're all equally needy, and that's the message of this pa passage. Over in chapter 3 and verse 22, we see this. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I view people in, in light of some are good and some are bad. And that's, and that's an estimation of relative righteousness, comparing ourselves with ourselves. But God says, apart from Jesus Christ, we're all born in a, in a state of separation from God, a state of sin, and we've all sinned. 
in all classes, all levels, however we want to describe, but come, sin and come short of the glory of God. And so we begin chapter 2 with this, it's verse 1, where he says, Therefore you are an inexcusable man, whoever you are, who judge. He first introduces to us this different class. Because remember, chapter 1 ended on this, this stark description of the ugliness of man's sinfulness. And then he shifts gear here in chapter 2 to a different class of people, those who judge, so to speak. And the first thing he reminds them of is that you're inexcusable. And he's saying, you're not with, without guilt. This class of sinner, this, this people he's describing here, are not without sin. Sin, They're just as deserving as God's judgment. And then he's going to proceed in this passage to tell them why. And so he describes this man as, you who are judge. And for, in whatever you judge, another. So the moral man here is described as one who judges another. And one who looks down his nose at others who thinks he's better than those of chapter 1. That's really the message here. The, the man who looks back at those people described in chapter 1 and thinks, well, I'm not, I'm not that kind of people. I'm better than that. I'm better than them. And sometimes people have that, that attitude, don't they? We think we're better because of standing, because of education, because of wealth, because of accomplishments. We, we all tend to think we're a little better than the average bear. That's the moral man. But he also judging, and judging in the scriptures is that which is critical and destructive and condemning. One commentator suggests that this passage could say, you who condemns another, because that's what he's talking about in judging, one who looks down and condemns another. Now we must note, by the way, and a little side note here, that discernment is not judging, is it? We're told to stand against error. And when somebody teaches something, proclaims something, that is contrary to the Bible, we, it's nothing wrong with recognizing they're wrong. Because when the Bible says something very clearly, you know, God, let God be true and every man a liar. And to recognize that is simply discernment. It's not judging. Judging has an attitude of destruction. It's condemning. It's critical. And often emanates from our pride and arrogance, doesn't it? I remember many years ago when we were inviting boys and girls to vacation Bible school in northern Minnesota, stopping at one house, and the person there who didn't have any kids, we got into a little discussion a little bit. And, uh, well, before we left, the person steps out the door and, and kind of pushes us back on the porch a little bit and points down the block and says, see that blue house down there? And we looked, and I said, yeah. She says, stop there. They really need it. And that's a moral man. They don't see themselves in their judgment of others because we generally don't pit our weaknesses against others' strengths, do we? We pit our strengths against others' weaknesses, and we become critical. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible condemns comparing ourselves with ourselves. And the Bible says that's not wise, in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. Well, along the way through this passage, we see some, some principles here in regards to both the condition of the moral man as well as some of the principles of God's judgment. And one of the first things we see here in, here in this first verse is that he says in the end of the verse, and whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you practice the same things. One of the characteristics of the moral man is that he condemns himself in condemning others because he practices the same things. He says, you're pointing your finger and you're doing the same things, is what God says. Because God knows the secrets of our heart, isn't it? You might think, well, well, how does he practice the same things? Because this is kind of a pretty ugly picture in chapter 1. Well, 
God says they do because maybe they practice it in secret, in joking and jesting, in entertainment. You can't help but think of the verse in Matthew 5 where the Lord Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And we find that in our list of sins here in chapter 1. But I say, Jesus says to, to you that whoever looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. And God takes it to the heart. It's a matter of heart. He gets the heart of the issue, you could say, doesn't he? In fact, we find in 1 John 3.15, it indicates that hatred is the equivalent of murder. Vehement, vicious hatred is the equivalent of murder because God gets to the heart of the issue. And so he tells the moral man, you're pointing your fingers at others, and you're doing the same things. Maybe not openly, maybe not obviously, and maybe they're the same, similar type of sins. This could be same but similar, similar but same, because all sin is sin in God's sight, isn't it? And we all have similar but different weaknesses in our lives. And so he says, in saying this, he says, you're condemning yourself because you practice the same thing, which means that, yes, moral man, you are worthy, just as worthy of judgment as the fellow over in chapter 1. That's what he's telling us. Well, he goes on in verse 2 then, and he says, but we know. He's going to make a clarification here in regards to God's judgment. This is kind of the first thing he mentions in regards to God's righteous judging of mankind. He says, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those that practice such things. God's ju judgment is on the basis of truth. And God is, is, is a source of truth. Jesus is the truth, way to heaven. We know the Bible is the truth. And God says, I'm going to judge not indiscriminately. I'm going to judge according to truth. There's an, there's an absolute standard, God says. The truth that I proclaim concerning myself is the truth that he's going to judge by. Which means, by the way, that he's not going to ask my opinion when it comes to judgment. What I think of that person down the block in the blue house is not according to me and my standards, my opinions, and we all kind of have our own set of mor morals, don't we? And those are convenient because we establish morals that we can keep. That's the ones we like. We have our own little standards, don't we? And we criticize others on the basis of them. But it's, instead, judgment's going to be according to the truth of God because sin, in reality, is a violation of God's truth. Coming short of God's glory means coming short of his righteousness. And righteousness is the expression of his truth. And so that's the basis of God's judges. He's going to judge each one's response to God's, the truth that God has revealed to them. And he says here, you who do this, he's going to judge according to truth against those who practice such things. And guess who's practicing the such things? The moral man was practicing the same things. You know, John, John 5.24 says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. That's the right response to truth. That's the truth. The, word, the Bible, the word, teaches us that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again in order to provide eternal life freely to those who believe. And that's what John says here. He who hears that message, hears my word, hears the truth, and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. God's going to judge on the basis of the truth, and the, and the central message of truth in the Bible is the message of salvation that God has provided through Jesus Christ. So he goes on to tell us then, in verse 3, do you think this old man, referring to this moral man, you who judge those practicing such things, and you're doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
And so the second thing we see in regards to God's judgment here, it's specific that the moral man will not escape God's judgment. God's not going to give him a free pass. The moral critic, the moral one who, con who speaks condescendingly about others, but does the same or similar things, will be judged by God. The moral sinner, along with the immoral, and he tells them why as we go on. He says, you're not going to escape, because in verse 4, you despise the riches of his goodness, long forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. They're told in verse 4, he despises the riches of God's goodness. Despises, he rejects the truth in regards to God's goodness, God's long-suffering, and forbearance. Goodness in the scriptures is really defined by as kindness in action. That's the goodness of God. And it's really a description of the grace of God through which God has provided salvation. God's goodness is God's grace in action. God's grace is, is treating us in, with kindness even though we don't deserve it, isn't it? That's the grace of God. It acts on our behalf freely in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. God loves us because he is loved. God extends grace to us because he's a God of grace, not because we earned it or deserved it. And then it wouldn't be grace. It would be works. It would be merit. It would be earned. God's grace is given to us freely. And it's a description of salvation. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And apparently that's what he's saying the moral man despises. The moral man would rather cling to his own good works, his own morality, to, to get it, give him a shot at heaven rather than on God's free gift, given in the riches of his grace to us in the person of his son. Chapter 2, verse 7 of Ephesians says this, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Titus 3, 4 through 6 says this, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, when did it appear? It appeared in Christ. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, that, that includes the moral man, but according to his mercy he saved us. Through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit who, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, that's the goodness that the moral man is rejecting. The kindness and love of God expressed through the provision of salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the free gift that God has given. And the moral man would rather think, oh, I'm good enough, I don't need that. Those people down in the Blue House need that message, but I don't need that message. I'm going to make her on my own. That's exactly what he is saying. Well, the word despise means to scorn, to think lightly of, and and the moral man would rather believe in his own message than God's message. That's why it's so important to accept the Bible, to know the Bible is God's absolute truth. Because it doesn't matter what I think. I don't care how moral I get, am, how religious I am, how upright I am. The next section is going to talk about the religious man in the same terms. But what does God have to say? It doesn't matter what the church has to say, what religions have to say, what TV preachers have to say. What does the Bible say? And even Paul recognized when he, when he wrote to his readers, he says, you know, I, I want you to understand God's word so that your faith doesn't stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is what God says. And it's hard to accept because, in our, because a moral man in his pride thinks, you know, I don't, I don't want to be taken down a notch because that's what God does. He levels the playing field in this passage, doesn't he? 
And so, the, so not only does the moral man despise God's goodness, the, the message of the love of God in providing salvation, rescue for mankind. You know, we sing, you know, that song, His Robes for Mine. What a beautiful song. I almost get teared up when I sing that song because God exchanged our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. We get his righteousness because Christ took our sinfulness on himself and suffered our hell on the cross. And man in his morality, when he rejects that message and would rather depend on self than Christ, despises that message. He also despises the forbearance of God. God putting up with all our pride and arrogance, our sin and rebellion. And along with that, he despises the long-suffering of God. And those two words are often used together in Scripture, the forbearance and long-suffering. It, it's kind of the patience of God. And can you imagine... You know, somebody shipwrecked in the ocean in a, in, a, in a raging storm, having a Coast Guard helicopter hovering above them, rocking in the winds, dangling a lifeline to the victim that is, that is barely staying afloat in the surf. Well, the victim contemplates and ignores it, dis, dis, disregards it. And doesn't know sure if they want to grab on or not. I mean, that seems that's silly. That's a kind of a stupid illustration. But that's really how foolish mankind gets. How long would the, would the pilot wait? How long would they put up with the lack of gratitude and appreciation in, 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 this, in this crew's desperate effort to rescue? But that's God's grace. God's grace is forbearing and long-suffering. He puts up with us. All the while, he seeks to bring us to the foot of the cross. Grace is amazing, isn't it? Well, he goes on to say here, then, not knowing in verse 4 that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. All this wonderful stuff about the goodness and patience of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And repentance means to change your mind. He said, you need to change your mind about your morality, fellow. He says, you need to see that all have sinned. You need to come to, to God's plan of salvation, not embrace your plan of salvation. You need to embrace God's plan of salvation because I lo I've loved you with an everlasting love, with an unconditional love. And God's grace and his goodness that we see in Jesus Christ is meant to draw someone to that point of decision, to a change of mind about salvation. And when you see, honestly and objectively, when the amazing love of God dawns upon a person, it brings them to that point of saying thank you. A change of mind, isn't it? A trust in Christ as Savior. One realizes that when Jesus died on a cross, he died for me. And some people point out, when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that I could put my name in that place. God so loved me. And that if I was the only person to rescue, Jesus would have still died for me. To rescue me. That's the kind of love he has. Where do you find that kind of love? You don't. It's amazing. And that is what draws us to himself. And that's why Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord has appeared to me of old, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. And here he says, Because of, here in verse 5, because of your hardness of your heart, you, you don't you refuse that message. You refuse to embrace it. You refuse to accept it. You know, you may have read stories of Christians throughout the ages who have lost their lives for the gospel, who have been persecuted and, and martyred. And this is why. It's because the hardness of man's heart in wanting to embrace his own religion, his own plan, his own message of salvation, reacts often in persecution. Jesus warned us about that because of the hardness of our heart. 
And here he says this moral man despises this because in accordance, verse 5, with the hardness of your impenitent heart, stubbornness and pride. Imagine that. I don't know if there's anybody in here that has, has, that has experienced those kind of foreign attitudes, stubbornness and pride. But it's that which keeps people from the cross. Me do it myself, we say from our cribby. And we say the same thing. The moral man says the same thing when he hears the message of salvation. No, me do it myself. That's, in, that's ingrained in us. And God wants to conquer that and humble us to realize. And that's what this passage is about. You wonder why there's so many chapters here given to the depravity of man? It's to humble us, to help us to see where we, what we really are as we stand before God as sinners who need a Savior. Well, in verse 5, it tells us, in reality, in accordance with your hardness and your unrepentant attitude, you're storing up for yourself wrath, for the day of wrath. And while the moral man thinks he is accumulating moral works that is going to get him to heaven, God says you're doing just the opposite. Because you're doing it your way, not God's way. You're rejecting the, the message of the goodness of God in Christ. You see, you're, you're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Amazing, isn't it? So the one who judges and condemns others, thinking others are worthy, worthy of hell, at least more so than, than he is, and the other hand probably thinks himself worthy of heaven, in that self-confidence, pride, arrogance, and rejection, rejects God's truth, is really storing up wrath, that he, the wrath of God that he is going to answer to God for someday. As you go on in verse 6, I know one commentator calls this passage God's judgment according to accumulated works, because in verse 6, it's, it says, who will render, end of verse 5 says, for, storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Then it goes on to explain eternal life to those who by patient, continuous, and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immor immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish, and every soul, a man who, who does evil, the Jew first, and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. Well, this passage is not teaching that we are saved by our works. Some people look at it and think it's teaching that God's going to give us a heaven because, of our, because we pursue righteousness or pursue the good. Instead, this passage all through this is teaching the basis of God's judgment of sinful mankind. Because in reality, for those who trust Christ as Savior, we escape the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that we are, and Paul write, writing to the believers in the church of Thessalonica says, we believers, we're not appointed to wrath. And that's because God's wrath has been executed upon Christ. He took our wrath upon himself. The wrath we deserved was executed upon Christ on that cross. He bore sin's wrath. He bore our sins on the cross. And so we stand forgiven. That debt has been settled. We don't have to face the wrath of God. It's been satisfied at the cross. And so when it talks about judgment here, it's talking about, about the time when God will judge sinners and the basis of judgment. And we know the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is, is apart from works. It's not by works. Even in this book, if you jump over to chapter 3, let's just turn a couple pages here. Jump, chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law, that's the Ten Commandments, says, 
it says to those who are under the law that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And we'll get to that probably in the next week or two. But what he's saying here is that Ten Commandments isn't the way we get to heaven. He says that by the deeds of the law, by the deeds of the Ten Commandments, no flesh is justified. Instead, the law reveals who we are. I read recently one commentator said, if someone thinks they get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, he says, well, you go see if you can keep them and call me back in 15 minutes and see if you didn't see something you coveted or, or, a, or a beautiful woman to look on that you lusted after. You know, we, we have a theory, but we don't keep it. And the James says, if we offend in one point, we're guilty. And so here it is clear that salvation is not by our efforts, by our works. Chapter 4, verse 5 says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In chapter 11, verse 6, it tells us, And if by grace, that is salvation, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In other words, grace and works don't mix. Either salvation is by works or it's by grace. Either it's free or it costs you something. One of the two, it's not both. Because grace is a, is a, is a concept in Scripture which is defined by the absence of works. It's free. And so we know this passage, going back to chapter 2, is not talking about salvation by works. It's talking about the basis of judgment. And in reality, it is, judge, it is identifying two classes of people by their characteristics here. And the Bible often does that. He talks about those who inherit eternal life, who in continuance seek good for glory, on, honor, and, and, and immortality. And those, but those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness and so on and so on. He's really describing two classes of people. We find that throughout the scriptures. They know that well-known passage of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, and peace, is preceded by the description of the fruit of the flesh. In, in our lives, and, it's, and, it's, and it has a similar list to what we find at the end of Romans chapter 1. It describes the works of the flesh. And it says that those kind of people aren't the kind that inherit eternal life. It's a description of the lost. In Ephesians chapter 5, it describes some of the works of the flesh and tells the believer to, to not have any part with them. That let these things not once be named among you as become a saint, it tells us in Ephesians 5. And so the Bible uses these descriptions of the of the lost versus the unsaved. But the point is, is that when God does judge, he is going to judge the, the unsaved according to their works because that's what they chose. He's going to pour his vengeance on, on the ugliness of mankind. You might say, when is that going to happen? Well, it could refer to a couple different instances. Let's, let's look at a couple passages to see if these, if these could be correlate with this passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. A few books over to your right. 2 Thessalonians. Verse 6 says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. In other words, God's going to repay those who are persecuting the Christians. That's what he's saying. In verse 7, he says, And to you who are troubled, persecuted, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Well, that must be the second coming. 
in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. And so here's that time of judgment when he's going to judge with flaming fire on the unrighteousness of men. Revelation chapter 20 is the other passage we could consider when we think of this day of wrath. Revelation chapter 20. You know, you could actually consider the whole book of Revelation because what you find in the book of Revelation after chapter 4 is a series of judgments, don't you? When you read through it, you know, the bold judgments the, and, and so on. And, and what God is, what you see in the book of Revelation is God pouring out his wrath upon sinful mankind. Mankind who's chosen the path that we see described in, in, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, or rather than the gospel of Christ, those who have despised the, the gospel of Christ because providing salvation costs God everything. His only son. And it costs Christ his life. And people reject that. In the book of Revelation, God pours out his vengeance, his wrath upon Christ, the Christ-rejecting world. And what's amazing is you see throughout that passage is there's, there's times when when it is mentioned that ne neither yet did they believe or did they submit, which tells us that one of the objectives of God's discipline, God's judgment, is to bring them to repentance. If they won't be drawn by God's goodness, maybe God get, will get them to their attention through his wrath. And that's the ultimate purpose. He'd rather, it's clear from the scriptures that God would rather save than condemn. Jesus said, Jesus said, I didn't come in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Well, the tribulation ends, you know, with the second coming of Christ. And we find here in verse 11, that I saw the, a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the, heaven, the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, because anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. This is the judgment of the unsaved dead. When they stand before God, you say, how come they're judged judge according to their works? Because they chose their works as a path to trust in. And because their works offended a holy God. And they're going to suffer eternal judgment because of their sin and the rejection of the truth of the gospel. And so going back to Romans chapter 2, he's going to render to each one according to his deeds. There's going to be punishment meted out. And there's going to be tribulation and anguish and so on. But glory and honor to those who works what is good. You know, if you have any, any doubt about that, the Lord Jesus was asked, in John chapter 6, he says, what must we do to work the works of God? Because that's our mentality, isn't it? You could say, well, how, what do I have to do to go to heaven? You might just as well say. And Jesus says, here's the work you do. Believe on him whom he has sent. That's what God wants. That's obeying the truth. We're told in the scriptures, the gospel, the good, good news message of salvation through faith alone in Christ is to be obeyed. It's something we're to embrace. Because God's rescue plan towards humanity is not meant to be an optional way of living, an alternative lifestyle. It is got the, the, the plan from the Creator and how to rescue us from eternal damnation that God extends to us. Oh, what a glorious 
privilege we have to have a Savior who loved us so much to rescue us to eternal glory. Well, as we go on here in verse 9, we find that God's righteous judgment is also universal. He repeats that again. Verse 9 says, it's on every soul of man. It's on Jew and Gentile alike. And he may be here somewhat transitioning to the next section, which is going to talk about the Jew, who is the example of a religious person. It's, it's to the Jew and Gentile alike. In verse 10, it's for everyone. In verse 11, it's without partiality. God's judgment is universal. No one escapes. He's re maybe reemphasizing that point, that mor the moral man, you are not going to escape. The only people excluded from that is the sinners because they trusted in the Lamb of God who bore the wrath of God for us on the cross. Then as we get to chapter, verse 12, we find that God's judge is based on a person's response to the revelation received. One of the questions that maybe existed at that time, he says, well, the Jews had God's Ten Commandments and God's righteous standard and, and God's word. They were the bearer of God wor God's word. In fact, they were supposed to treasure that word, study that word, and share that word, which they fell far short of doing that. And what happened is the Gentiles didn't have the Bible, didn't have the Ten Commandments. And, and the question is going to be maybe to the Gentiles is, well, could you judge me since I didn't have your word? What's, what's the basis of judgment? Verse 12 says, for not the hearers, excuse me, verse 12 says, for as many as have sinned without law, the Ten Commandments and all that went with it, will also perish without the law. God says that's still going to happen. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So those who don't have the law are still going to be judged, even though they didn't have the Ten Commandments. But those who did have the Ten Commandments are going to be judged by that law. God's going to judge them on the basis of the revelation they had. They have been given the word of God, and they were going to be judged on that basis. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. I kind of think that might have been in, uh, uh, directed to the Jews because the Jews thought they had privilege. They had given God's chosen people. God had given them a land. God had, had, had entrusted to them the scriptures. And they were special. And they thought they were special. So special that they didn't, they didn't need anything to go to heaven. And he's, and he's telling them, just because you heard, I think that represents receiving the law. Just because your privilege doesn't mean you're going to escape judgment, he says, to them. But going on, verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do, by nature do the things in the law, these, also, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. It says here the Gentiles do by nature the things that are in the law. And, he's going, and he goes on to exp explain that in verse 15, he said, when he says, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Now we saw that back in chapter 1. That God has revealed himself through our consciousness. There's a God consciousness in each of us. And that's why no matter where you go in the world, you find, you you find some type of law, a respect of some type of dignity. It may vary, but murder is, is almost always wrong. Stealing is wrong and so on. There's, there's, there's a law written in our hearts. Now it's dulled, no doubt. In Romans 1, it says that it's suppressed because of unrighteousness, our knowledge of God. But it's there. And that's what he's saying here. You know, the Gentiles didn't have the Ten Commandments, but they had the law of God written in their hearts. And that's exactly what he's saying in verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. 
Their conscience, it's in their conscience. And the conscience bears witness to these laws. And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. That's the evidence when they accuse or excuse each other based on their moral standards that is written in their heart. And so we find two bases of accountability here before God. Those who have the law and those who don't have the law but have the law of God in their hearts. And God says, you're going to be judged on that basis, so don't think moral man. That just because you didn't have the law of the Jews had that you're going to escape. That's really the, the idea here. The Gentiles do by nature, and, the, and God is going to judge, reaching all the way back to the beginning of this section, verse, uh, verse 12, where as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. God will still judge on that basis. And then he tells us in conclusion here, in verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of man by Jesus Christ. And maybe that's a special note to the, to the moral man, that God's judgment is going to reach to the secret places of our lives. Because we know nothing's hidden from God. You know, sometimes we get really a little silly when we think we can even lie to ourselves. When we think when there's something we've done and we don't want to own up to it or admit it. Or maybe we think because somebody caused us or there was a cause and effect that we can justify it. So we really, it wasn't our fault. So maybe we really didn't do it anyway because it wasn't really our fault. It was my sister's fault, my brother's fault, my spouse's fault, whatever. And God says, no, even those things that are hidden, those things you've buried way back in the recesses of your past, nothing's hidden. Moral man. Because remember, he who judges another does the same things. And those are going to be revealed in, 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 in its time, isn't it? So the judgment of God is going to include the secrets of men's hearts. And that day, when, when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And I think he ends up on this note that the primary place where judgment begins is with the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be the most important judgment, first of all. Have you trusted Christ? You know, John 11, when, the, when, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life, he who believes on me will live forever. And I can paraphrase slightly. And he asks, do you believe this? And that's the question God presents to us. Because it's quite obvious from this passage that God takes sin seriously. I think we've forgotten as a culture what sin is. Sin's become a foreign word. I think if you ask the average person on the street to define sin, they wouldn't know what to say. We've lost our knowledge of God and thereby lost the knowledge of his holiness and lost a knowledge then of what the violation of that holiness is, sin. But whether we know it or not, we're guilty. Even for those who don't want to acknowledge their sin, Romans 5.12, as we get later in this, in this book, we'll see that as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and that death is passed upon all men, for all have sinned. All we sin, we've sinned in Adam. And our ancestor, we've sinned in him. We're sinners, and we're worthy of death. God takes sin seriously. In fact, we should know that through the cross. The extreme of God himself coming, becoming a man to bear the, the scorn of man and then to bear our sins on the cross. Thankfully, he died and rose again. Should communicate something to us, the seriousness of sin in our lives. But thankfully, God has provided a remedy, the gospel, the good news. The righteousness of God is revealed. And though we are unrighteous by nature, God has provided for us a glorious righteousness in our lives that we can stand in. And so that's always the question that we 
God puts before us today. Where do we stand today? Are we standing in our own righteousness, which is of the law? Are we standing in the righteousness of Christ? Forgiven, cleansed, and prepared for heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have provided for us. And Father, you go through great lengths in these passages to lay before us, lay bare our sinfulness, Father. No matter what class we fit into these pages, Father, you remind us that we are guilty and need a Savior, that there is none righteous, no, not one. But we thank you that the righteous one, the holy one, the Lord Jesus came to be our substitute, to bear our sin, to provide for us something we could never provide for ourselves as, un as unrighteous sinners. He provided salvation. He paid our penalty, took our hell. So, Father, that we will never experience your wrath. What an amazing thing. When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to know that we've been delivered from, from the wrath of God. We're guaranteed of eternal life. We have a friend who sticks closer than a brother and a God who is for us. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace. So make these things plain and understandable to us, Father. And Father, help us as well to recognize the people around us, to view them not through our eyes of judgment, of criticism, based upon our perspective, but Father, help us to see people as they relate to you, people in need of a Savior who need to know that God has provided a way, a way of rescue, a way of escape, a way of eternal life. Embolden us to that, and we pray now in Jesus' name.